This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. One of the recurring themes on this show has been our evolving relationship with technology. I keep returning to this topic because I really do think that technology has transformed how we relate to each other and to the world around us. Some of these changes are obvious, and some of them are more subtle. The subtle changes are especially interesting to me because they have more to do with our inner lives and how they've been distorted by the internet and social media in particular. We've done a few episodes on related topics like the self and authenticity, and those conversations were mostly about the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. But we haven't really had a conversation about the history of self-creation, and that history is essential to know if we want to make sense of the impact digital technology is having on us today. I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is Tara Isabella Burton. She's the author of a new book called Self-Made, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to Kardashian. And incidentally, she's a former colleague of mine at Vox. Tara is someone with deep and wide-ranging interests. She's a cultural critic and an Oxford-educated theologian who brings that sensibility to every topic she touches. And this book is a wonderful example of that. It's a cultural history of self-creation from the Renaissance to the Enlightenment all the way up to the digital era. And it makes a compelling case that something fundamental shifted in the 17th century. It was, in her view, the beginning of a turn away from collective identities towards a more individualistic mindset. It is a fascinating story, and it helped me better understand how social media has supercharged our need for authenticity. We started by discussing why she wanted to write the book in the first place. My doctoral research was in dandyism and theology, and the idea of creating one's life as a work of art and, to a lesser extent, artistic creation as particularly loaded in late 19th century Paris, which was this time and place where people were wrestling with cultural anxieties very similar to our own industrialization, the power of technology, the sense that everything around them was being reproduced mechanically, that there's department stores everywhere and advertisements everywhere. And at the same time, sort of on a more theological or, or religious side, faith or the cultural relationship between faith and doubt was changing the sense that the world might be less of an enchanted place and that perhaps it was up to human beings to fill in that gap of magic, rise of interest in the occult even. All of these were so much a part of this era that I loved. And I wrote my doctoral thesis, I put it away. My first nonfiction book, Strange Rights, which was really shaped by my time at Vox, writing about not just more traditionally understood religious stories like evangelicals and Trump or the Catholic sex abuse scandal, but also about yoga and witchcraft and all of these kind of remixed religious landscape that was less organized or less formal or institutional. 
Which is all to say that when I came to think about what I wanted to do as a follow-up to Strange Rights, I was really interested in writing about something that I, I love to write about, which is the weird metaphysics of the internet. How our relationship with self-presentation in this network technology both reflects and shapes a kind of implicit cultural metaphysic in a culture that is not religious as traditionally understood for many, if not, I would argue, most people. And in thinking about this, my interest in this, um, some of these older dandy figures, not just the sort of obscure, weird French ones like Barbie Dorely or Joris Carrissement, but people like Oscar Wilde, perhaps better known to the English-speaking world, I became interested in telling a wider story, a story that kind of married my academic interests with an exploration both of this kind of narrative of self-making that I see as an integral part of American culture, the myth of the self-made person, but also contemporary Instagram culture and the attention economy, the sense of our personal branding as an economic necessity where the line between economic self-making and celebrity self-making is getting thinner and thinner. And so, self-made. Something that speaks to a I guess you'd call it a, a contradiction at the core of selfhood that I do think you center a little bit throughout the book. And, and the contradiction is that the self is always already a social reality because the very idea of the individual is sort of unintelligible without other people around to acknowledge us and distinguish ourselves from. And that's not really a question, but I guess I'm asking if you think this drift into a more self-involved, self-obsessed world kind of cut us off from, I don't know, maybe you would say God, but I guess I'm thinking more that it's cut us off from each other in a way that blots out the reality of our interdependence. Absolutely. I do think that. I think we are social beings. We are relational beings. And I think that if I am critical of the idea that our desires are authoritative, it's not because I think desire is bad or what have you, but I think that we often don't have very good access to ourselves, to what we want, or that I think it's a mistake to think of it as pure, given so much of our self-understanding comes from stories, cultural stories, myths, legends, language itself, a shared cultural phenomenon. Now, I will say I am wary. I think that there is a version of the story of self-making that is a very pessimistic negative one, perhaps even one might say conservative one, that goes something like, in the good old days of the medieval era, everyone knew their place, and kings were kings, and peasants were peasants, and it's all downhill from there. I do not think that, and I would be wary of thinking that. What I actually do think, and, and hope to argue in self-made, is that the weirdness that makes us human, that I think many of the self-makers in my book are actually from, in very different ways, Frederick Douglass to Oscar Wilde are trying to work out is there is something, something special, something distinct, something maybe even sacred about the parts of ourselves that are not reducible to our biography or our story or the facts of our existence. And that part of our ability to choose and to create and indeed to tell stories is linked to that. And that is part of who we are. At the same time, it is only part of who we are. We are also social beings. We are relational beings, and we are mortal animals. Towards the end of my book, I quote that soliloquy in Hamlet, what a piece of work is a man. I mean, this is not a particularly new insight that it's pretty weird that we're both animals and also kind of gods. But I think, culturally speaking, we've lost sight of the difficulty in reconciling all those parts of ourselves in favor of valorization of one part at the expense of the rest. There's so much there. You know, I, I really love the section on the Enlightenment and the bit on Montaigne, in particular, the French philosopher, because what you see in this historical moment, and Montaigne like, illustrates this as well as anyone, is kind of what you were just talking about, this realization that so much of what we took to be natural law or divine truth was really just an accident of history. It could have been otherwise. And is that sort of, for you, that moment in time, the beginning of the disenchantment of the world, which maybe on the one hand led to a lot of experimentation and, and personal liberation, but maybe also at the same time created a lot of social disruption? Roughly speaking, 
My answer to the question, is this a pivotal moment? Yes, absolutely. Montaigne, when he, in his introduction to his essays, when he jokes about painting himself naked, Montaigne's really, really into being naked. It's actually, when you think about it, pretty weird. Every other essay, he'll just have an aside about like, wouldn't it be cool if I were naked right now? And weirdness aside, I think the rhetorical device he's using is this idea that there is a kind of authentic Montaigne-ness that clothing, that putting something on that social dictates is occluding or obscuring, that a certain kind of antisocial naturalness is the truest state of human beings. However, I do want to push back. You described this change as a disenchantment of the world. And I think that actually, I can see why one might say that, and I don't disagree entirely, but I think that I would frame it as a shift in the location of the enchantment of the world. Both in in Strange Rights and in Self Made, one of my commitments is that we are not looking at a secular age now, so to speak, but rather a reimagining of where we see the sacred divinity on which the universe runs. And particularly, this becomes more and more apparent in the 19th century in different ways, both in America and in Europe. And that is the scope of my book, to be clear, is what sort of is the West, is America and Europe in particular. In both sides of the Atlantic, there becomes more and more prevalent in the 19th century ideas about kind of proto-vibes, you could call them, energies, currents, that there's something that kind of some force in the world, and often it's uh, deeply wedded to either proto-science or really pseudoscience, so ideas of electricity, of evolution, particularly human natural selection, ideas of magnetism, and ideas of magic, all get bound up together in concepts of some kind of energy that human beings, individual human beings, can harness, where it's basically runs the spectrum to it's a little bit like magic to It is literally occultist magic, which is to say from movements like New Thought in the 19th century uh, popular in America, kind of a proto-the secret or proto-manifesting, the idea that positive thinking and focusing on getting wealthy or healthy could actually make those things manifest in your life, to the more extreme end of things, figures like uh, Josephine Peladon or Alastair Crowley, who actually see manifesting the will as a kind of way of getting in touch with and controlling the energy of the universe. And I sometimes joke that the story of self-making is also kind of the story of magic, but it is very much true that the idea of the self-made person is deeply bound up, and this is true from the Renaissance onwards, with ideas of the person who creates their own destiny, the person who is a self-maker, be they an artistic celebrity or a rugged, bootstrapped entrepreneur, is someone who is like a demigod, like a mage, someone who has worked out how the universe works and the energy underpinning it and knows how to harness it. To quote Stuart Brand, the mid-20th century counterculture prophet of... um, basically network computing in his whole Earth catalog. We are as gods, and we might as well get good at it. You know, there is so much ground covered in this book. You mentioned it just a second ago. I mean, the period you're tracing out goes all the way back to the Renaissance through 19th and 20th century Europe, right up to the present, really. And there are a ton of characters in the book, and we can't discuss most of them, but it may help to just highlight a few in particular who seem to me, at least on the surface, very unlike each other, but they're connected in the book and and in their own way kind of give a pretty good snapshot of this history. And the three figures are Da Vinci, Oscar Wilde, and Frederick Douglass, two of whom I think you've already mentioned. Can you just say a little bit about why you chose these three as case studies? Sure. So I will confess the choice of Da Vinci in the subtitle. He is more recognizable to readers, but my my personal favorite Renaissance genius is Albrecht Durer, another kind of artist lauded as a genius. But what is true both of Durer and Da Vinci and of other Renaissance genius sort of self-promoters of this time was that the special thing that they had their artistic talent, but also something greater, was understood in this era of increased social mobility, especially for members of what we might think of as the artisan middle class, 
all of these people who leapfrog the social order, who didn't quite fit. They were not aristocrats, they weren't peasants, but perhaps they were moving in elevated circles as a result of their talent. They understood themselves and were understood as something a little bit more than human. And the implicit narrative is that they're God's bastards. Their legal father might be someone not of high birth, but they have a direct line somehow to, again, God, nature, fate, fortune. And this sets the stage for what becomes a really recurrent problem, question, concern, anxiety in the self-making story, which is, is the self-maker chosen and innately special? Or do they just work for it? And are they harder workers? And can anybody be a self-maker? And this tension, and with it, this idea of a kind of secret aristocracy, no less innate than the aristocracy of blood or birth, kind of has its genesis. And the quest for that specialness, and in some cases, the claiming of that specialness, has huge political import. I think sometimes the story of self-making, we think of it as a story of like liberation, of progress. That's certainly how someone like Frederick Douglass many centuries later would think of it. Until basically the 20th century, um, the rise of the Hollywood star system, I do see self-making as having two slightly different strands. The more reactionary strand, the kind of vision of the aristocracy of the spirit that we see in dandies like Beau Brummel, later Oscar Wilde, uh, Gabriele D'Annunzio, that ultimately kind of, let's say, culminate in the Nietzschean idea of the Ubermensch or the kind of secret spiritual aristocrat, the self-maker as a special person who is just better than other people, and it is, in this narrative, usually he. Now, across the pond in America, we see something uh, very different, and at first glance, uh, more uh, liberatory, more uh, perhaps more optimistic. This vision that what makes America great is that Anybody, no matter when or how they are they are born, this is particularly uh, moving coming from Douglas, who was, of course, born into uh, slavery, um, but that in this America that he envisioned, no matter who your father is, again, this idea of paternity, you can become a gentleman. You can become the inheritor, the metaphorical son of an Abraham Lincoln, say, because you work hard. However, by the time you get to the Gilded Age, a lot of this vision of self-governance and virtue gets replaced by make a bunch of money. And the self-made man, it becomes code not for someone who is sort of virtuous and industrious, but just for a Carnegie, for a self-made captain of industry. What does the term self-made even mean? That's coming up after a quick break. Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... 
Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. How do you even define a term like self making, which is a little bit abstract. One of the interesting things you say in the book is that even the idea of self-making or self-creation, it would have been nonsensical to the pre-modern mind, right? There's something about the modern world that provided the space for even the ambition of self-making or self-inventing or self-creating. So even when you use a term like that, what really do you mean? I like the sort of Oscar Wilde version of creating one's life as a work of art. I think that I would say ultimately what self-making becomes is that one's personality, including how one is perceived, becomes a kind of commodity for either artistic or economic profit, and increasingly for both. It's not to say persona I'm wary of, because I think that the ultimately self-making kind of collapses the distinction between the persona and the real self, that our interior landscape exists to be cultivated. But part of the process of that cultivation is about how others see us. Right. And this is something that we find as much in the Renaissance with manuals about uh, the importance of sprezzatura, the appearance of effortlessness for the courtier, whether or not it is actually effortless for him to behave in a certain way all the way up unto kind of 19th century dandy manuals about appearing a certain way in public. Ultimately, I think self-making is about the um, cultivation of one's personality in both public and private to for certain ends that are ultimately primarily about personal gain. So it sounds like branding. It is branding, yes. I think all of this is personal branding with a spiritual component. Oh, that's a hell of a way to put it. Okay, I like that. This kind of fast-forwards us to the present a little bit, because again, there's a ton of history to surf through here, and we just we can't do it all, so I don't even want to try. But there is a word that comes up a ton in the book, and that word is authenticity. And... You know, the pursuit of authenticity, the need for it is pretty pervasive today. <laughs> I think people know what I mean by that. And it is obviously related to this broader project of self-creation, but you seem very wary of the idea of authenticity. Is that even true? And if it is, why? Because I think the answer to that will explain a lot. I'm extremely wary. Oh, Hot take. Yeah, I, I don't think it exists. So I'm, I'm very influenced. Uh, I should sort of lay my cards out. I'm very influenced by the philosopher Charles Taylor on this. Mm, um, yeah. But I think that authenticity is kind of this sort of weirdly meaningless word because it often seems to refer to an internally psychologically felt sense of truth that may or may not have anything to do with reality as such. It is a kind of emotional description of an emotional state that's roughly like what I am doing accords with my own self-image, which is, I think, has a certain value up to a point. But what I think has happened in contemporary culture is that authenticity when we talk about someone like Montaigne, for example, who valorizes nakedness as the authentic state, that you are getting about something true and real about the naked man because he is not putting on social clothes to clothe his authentic reality. That, I think, for reasons we've already discussed, I'm wary of this as a model precisely because I think that we are social beings and we are not naked creatures running around in the woods. However, I think that increasingly, the idea of self-expression through creation, the idea that it is truer for David Bowie to express himself as Ziggy Stardust in a certain way than for David Bowie to run around naked in the woods, is a meaningful statement and does tell us something about how we think about authenticity and self-expression and the relationship between artifice and authenticity. Another, you know, you think of uh, Oscar Wilde saying, give a man a mask and he'll show you the truth from another point of view. I think that there is absolutely something useful and indeed meaningful about self-expression and the way that we 
express whatever that weird, hard, indefinable thing about our distinct humanity is through culture. I experience self-expression through clothing, as many people do. But I think that when we valorize it to the extent that we valorize it now in a culture where so many of us kind of are forced to participate in personal branding for whether it's social capital, uh, for job opportunities, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or being on a dating profile or writing a college admissions essay. The idea that we are have to perform a true version of ourselves through this kind of act of self-presentation and modulation, to me, I find deeply depressing and alienating. Yeah, I do too. And I know this sounds a little bit lazy and kind of very of the moment, but I really do think the introduction of the iPhone and social media is one of the most consequential experiments in mass psychology ever. And it has supercharged this desire for self-invention because it's really democratized it. And now we're all able to play this game on a virtual stage? I mean, do I sound like a Luddite here? I mean, did you spend a lot of time on TikTok for this book? I mean, have you observed the insufferable world of wellness Instagram? I mean, what the hell do you see happening there? And how does it sort of reflect what you're talking about? Uh, you don't sound like a Luddite. My conviction coming away from this book is that I want to be someone who doesn't have a smartphone. I failed. I've relapsed from my attempt to do this the first time, but I'm attempting to not have a smartphone with me. Right now, I'm trying to use an Apple Watch to get calls and texts and emails so that I don't have to look at something with a browser or camera. And I think that more and more of us are aware of how hellish and nightmarish it is to exist through a world that's purely form-mediated or where so many of experiential opportunities are primarily seen as creative opportunities for the creation of the self. So one of the things that I hate most in the world is experiences, by which I mean the sort of commodified, like, events that exist for you to take a picture at them and put on Instagram. Certain pop-ups, certain immersive theater experiences. I love some immersive theater. But there is a sense where, like, you go to an event, you dress a certain way, but the purpose of the event is to take a picture against a nice backdrop and ultimately add this to your feed as an act of self-creation. And I, I cannot think of anything more depressing. And I know I'm the one who sounds like a Luddite because I have been to so many concerts, events, even nightlife events, what have you, where unless there is a particular injunction against it, and in fact, recently in one case, even though they specifically said, please do not do this, we are begging you not to do this, you cannot see the performer except through everybody else's phone screens. And I think the kind of easy thing to say is like, wow, it's terrible that everybody's so addicted to their phones, which is true. But I think that what is behind it is this idea that we so feel this compulsive neurotic need to construct ourselves such that there is very little appetite for pure receptivity, for invisibility, for attending things as audience members rather than as kind of main characters in whatever drama we're enacting for our followers. And the fact that whole careers can be made because of this, economies run on this, as a writer, as a freelance writer who would like people to buy my book, I cannot, I mean, I could opt out of it, but I think my publicist would be really mad at me if I did. Like, there are material reasons to do this. This is not just a pure narcissism, so to speak. And I do wonder then, uh, when I think about this, and I think about being a freelance writer who, like, wishes I were funnier on Twitter than I am so that I could go viral so that everyone would buy everything I've ever written, is whether privacy will become a certain kind of luxury good, whether sometimes I think I'll know that I've made it professionally when I become one of those people who, like, doesn't check my email and doesn't have any social media and, you know, requires people to write a handwritten letters or what have you, that it is only when one has attained a degree of financial success or career success that one can opt out of being seen. If there was some resistance bubbling up in me a little bit during parts of your book, I think it had to do with something we're circling around here. This impulse, which I have sometimes to dismiss self-creation or self-invention as 
meaningless precisely because it is kind of a performance. And and maybe you're not even dismissive in that way, but I know plenty of people are. And I guess I, I wonder what you make of some of these existentialist thinkers who you reference in the book who say that, you know, hey, the, the God-ordered world was an illusion, perhaps a very useful one, and we are confronted with an absurd existence. And the way you create meaning in that situation is to turn your life into a kind of experiment, to make the most of your performance in this tragic comedy <laughs> we call life. I mean, do you find inspiration in that call? Do you find it beautiful, but perhaps maybe a little too spiritually empty in the end? Hmm. So I think I, I have a lot of time for existentialists. So I'm a person of faith, so I, I don't think it's all meaningless. And sometimes I think I'm persuaded. I had a professor in grad school who basically said, like, we don't have to worry about Richard Dawkins. We have to worry about Nietzsche, sort of, you know, it's Dostoevsky. I've got it. Everything is permitted. I don't necessarily think that at all. But I do think that in the absence of an account of transcendent truth or transcendent goodness, and that does not necessarily need to be the account that I think it is. But I think that in the absence of that, a challenge does arise, which is where does the good come from? What kind of commitments can we make and hold ourselves to outside of our own desires? And I think that it's not, it is not impossible, but it is difficult. I think that the question of seeking the good is something that does require or should require access to or an attempt to understand something beyond our personal, immediate desire. And I think that faith in a particular kind of conception of that transcendence does help. But I think one of the kind of fundamentally wise things that is true of I'd say nearly all wisdom traditions globally is a sense that our own personal sense of self is only part of the story. Yeah, I mean, I struggle even to articulate this. And maybe this is some of the some of the influence that Nietzsche has had on me sort of coming out here. But I do believe that there are real, you know, let's call them creative spirits, like a David Bowie, who you just mentioned, who incidentally was a big admirer and reader of Nietzsche. You know, people like that who really do turn their lives into works of art, who really do experiment with life. But I think most of us are not like this. Most of us are not artists in that way. So when we brand ourselves online or when we work so hard to create and project our identity, I'm not sure what we're doing exactly other than groping about for recognition. And you know what? Maybe that's all that Bowie or any other successful artist is doing in the end. <laughs> I don't know, but there does seem to be a difference there. I'm not quite sure how to pin it down. I think the kind of hunger for recognition and the ability to convey something about our personality, something about our usness, I think it's at the core of all art in a different way. And this is not in the book. This is just stuff that I was thinking about while watching my friend's rock concert a couple of weeks ago. That um, I think that there are other art forms, and such as the novel, that can explore in a particular way that desire for recognition or the ways that we tell stories about ourselves as being complicated by all the other stories that other people are telling about themselves. Like the reason that Dostoevsky is one of my favorite novelists is because I think he does that. His novels are about everyone's kind of stories crashing against each other. But I think that something that particularly rock music does really effectively is it conveys the pure personality of the performer to an audience. There is a kind of deep individualism to it. There's a real sexiness to it of a kind of self-disclosure through performance that is about the distinctiveness of the person. It's often like when you think of like a rock star, you don't necessarily think of someone who is like a technically gifted singer or perhaps even a, a technically gifted composer, but someone who is conveying their selfhood effectively. Now, I have no idea why, you know, why rock does this and other genres don't. I'm not a music historian, but I do think that there are particular genres, and certainly Bowie being a great example of, of glam rock, that are about the communication of one's personal individuality. Coming up after a quick break, we discuss the internet's role in accelerating the drift into commodification.
In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The internet, as it often is, is a really important accelerant here. And I think it's accelerated some of this drift into commodification. And, you know, I mean, two characters in the book uh, who you call the most prominent self-creators of the past 20 years, I think speak to this exquisitely, if not depressingly. And they are Kim Kardashian and Donald Trump. And you even call Kardashian, quote, the apex of the nihilistic aristocratic tradition. So what does someone like a Kardashian or Trump sort of represent in this story? Or what do they illustrate about really this moment? So I think the culmination of the idea that you are whoever you want to be is that reality itself is downstream of desire. Reality is what you make it. And the kind of logic goes something along the lines of, ultimately, reality is just human perception because there is no transcendent reality. And so the, the way that you shape reality is by shaping human perception. So if you can make people believe it's true, it's true. And this is something that is like specifically encoded more sort of technically in the tradition of new thought, this self-help tradition that was and remains very popular in the United States and was kind of really brought back into prominence in the mid-20th century by Norman Vincent Peale, Christian pastor who kind of Christianized this new thought movement and who was the personal pastor to the Trump family and whom Donald Trump has cited as an influence. And that's not to say that, like, Norman Vincent Peale brainwashed Trump into becoming Trump, but rather that I think the cultural tendencies that New Thought and Peale represent did kind of find perhaps a perfect vessel in someone who, one might say, personality-wise, was primed to believe that truth was whatever you made it. And I think that, like, this is also something that we see true in, and I do not speculate about the internal life of Kim Kardashian, but in Kim Kardashian, the character that we see, who is an extremely sort of manicured and exaggerated figure who's apparent, although she, of course, denies surgical intervention, whose apparent surgical intervention leans into this idea that she's like made herself into a cyborg, so to speak, that we know that however Kim Kardashian looks is how Kim Kardashian has chosen to or wants to look, or at least that is the sort of thing that her style gets across, that her desire to have reality go a certain way is written upon her body. And this sense that reality is, is fungible is so much a part of both of their personae. But, you know, Kardashian turns herself into a product, right? She sort of becomes famous for being famous. And I think we all get what she's doing there, making lots and lots of money branding herself like that. But what the hell are, are the millions and millions and millions of non-Kardashians out there basically behaving like Kardashian without, the, <laughs> without all the profit? What are they doing and why are they doing it? I think some of it is, is a hope of, you know, it is a viable path for... <laughs> fame and fortune. I think that particularly in an economy that features increasing numbers of gig workers in which many of us have side hustles in which the attention economy ties into more and more of our professional lives, I think that more and more of us have to sort of internalize the idea that like self-performance is just part of what you do. It's like clocking into work. It's like updating your resume. And even if you don't specifically want to become an influencer, I think it's just kind of perhaps we don't even 
examine this impulse because it has become so quickly encoded into our cultural life that we all just like, it's what you do and it's what you have to do. And not doing it would be stupid in a way. Like not doing it would be a dereliction of the duty we have toward ourselves to present our best selves. Like if you are someone who does not have social media or public-facing social media, you're a little bit weird or it's, it's a little bit of an act of folly in some way. Part of this to me just feels like in some ways, self-expression is kind of the only refuge for the individual in a world without much community or real-world solidarity, right? And so to the extent we do have identity at all or shared identity at all, it's mostly hollow and superfluous because it plays out on these like vapid virtual platforms that incentivize exactly this kind of thing. And here's... I'm not sure quite what to make of this, but I do think what's very strange is, um, and like Gia Tolentino's written about Instagram face and the kind of uniformity of certain looks of makeup. Yeah, yeah. But that it's not exactly self-expression either, which is to say, like, there's fewer weirdos out there. And I, I say this with, with love for the weirdos, that there seems to be a kind of personal branding that requires fitting into specific influencer molds in a way that doesn't even seem to have the the joy or the individuality of, of the Oscar Wilde. And I don't know why that is or why we finally have the tools to all be dandies and what we seem to be doing with it is all becoming Kim Kardashian. Well, that's exactly right. And that's kind of, there's no there there. There's nothing behind it. And that's kind of what's so instructive about the hyper-reality of someone like a, a Donald Trump. And let's just set aside the, the politics stuff for now, right? He, like His whole public persona is this insane example of the authority of the image, the authority of branding. His, like, his whole public life is shambolic, and he knows it, and he tells you as much, and it just doesn't matter because the spectacle is the point, the fantasy is the point, and there's just something very, very American about Trump in that way. And I think it's something maybe a lot of people don't want to grapple with because of what it says about the vacuousness of our culture or whatever. But I think there's something there or something to that. Absolutely. All right, let me ask you this, because I don't want to live in the old medieval world in which our station in life was predetermined by other mammals using God or some other divine authority as their justification. And I also don't want to live in the present world where the obsession with status and authenticity reduces us to shallow, neurotic creatures. So where's the happy medium here, Tara? Like, how can we live in a world where the individual is liberated from artificial constraints and fear of judgment and all that, but also isn't obsessed with selling and projecting their identity and unhealthy ways? That's a super easy question. You have 30 seconds to answer it. Go. Uh, sure. Uh, uh, everyone should touch more grass and get to know their neighbors. And I always say that the best antidote to self-baking is genuine relationships with people who basically can see through our bullshit, make it a lot harder to maintain facades. And I think that's all the easier if more of us had the kind of, a degree of economic security could at least ameliorate the desperation to get ahead in the gig economy. You mentioned Dostoevsky earlier. Can I ask you a question about him? Sure. I'm a big admirer of his. We've talked about him a bunch on the show. And you wrote a very interesting essay about him recently. And I think it does tie into this. You know, I've always been pretty speechless before the argument the Grand Inquisitor famously makes in his book, The Brothers Karmazov. And the argument that the Inquisitor famously makes is about how human beings are secretly horrified by the very thing they claim to want most, which is freedom, right? The freedom to be themselves, to create themselves, whatever. And, you know, true freedom brings with it that responsibility to create yourself. And the Inquisitor makes a pretty strong case that we don't really want that. We can't really handle that. And that's why we deliver ourselves over to movements and people who settle our identities for us. Do you think there's real truth in the Inquisitor's argument there, even if you don't want there to be? Yes, I do. And I think that particularly if I were not a person of faith, I would find it extremely convincing. But I think that true freedom is kind of an abstraction. Like, we are in space, we are in time, we are not infinite creatures, and our ability to even conceive of existence comes to us so socially mediated through language, through image, through story, that to me the idea of 
perfect freedom feels like a math problem. It's something that I can abstract, but I don't think is kind of relevant to human life because, I mean, we're all going to die. And I think the horizon of death against which we struggle means that whatever we make of it, whether we conclude that, well, we've only got a certain amount of time and we might as well like decide what we're going to do with it, or whether we fit ourselves to certain kinds of virtue, I've become perhaps morbidly increasingly convinced that like all of life is in a certain way preparation for death or a kind of engagement with death, our own and, and, and that of everybody else. Against that horizon, I think one can say we can talk about giving meaning to our lives, or we can talk about abandoning hope for an afterlife. But what we're not talking about is complete freedom. Can I push you in a way that you might resist and you can just punt if you want? Sure. <laughs> I think there is a real worldview guiding your approach to all of this. And I think you rightly don't let it cloud or overwhelm the story you're telling. But I'm fascinated by it. And I would love to pull it out of you just a little bit if I can. And I don't want to invoke these really kind of stale categories like left or right or progressive or conservative. But I see something deeper in you. Maybe it is religious. Maybe you would call it something else that shapes your critiques of the contemporary world. And I guess I wonder if you have a clear internal sense of what that is and what's pushing you and maybe kind of what you're really fighting for or arguing for here. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I don't want to punt that at all. Um, I'm a Christian. I'm an Episcopalian. Christian humanist is what I'd call myself. And in terms of the commitments that I bring to my work, I believe in good and evil. I believe in the dignity of the human person and the irreducibility of each human person. And of the kind of, one of the sort of things that you, one of the things that goes with the territory as a Christian is the sense that, like, God becoming man is this wondrous mystery that means that in human existence and all its contingency, there is something holy and sacred. And that's the commitments that I bring to my work. I hope they don't sort of overshadow my work. But I think that if there is a commitment I bring to self-made or to strange rights, it's not necessarily saying like, this is what I believe in people don't, who don't believe in me are wrong. It's the um, awareness that just as my philosophical and spiritual commitments shape how I feel about everything. I think that many people in the quote-unquote secular world maybe are not encouraged to think as systematically about the ways in which their own commitments about the world, the nature of good, the nature of evil, the nature of our relationships with one another might also be connected. Which is to say, I think that like there are many systematic ways one can approach the world. What fascinates me about theology, why I wanted to study it long before I was a person of faith, was the idea that like how I thought about God, how I thought about like the plant in the park, how I thought about my dog, and how I thought about my mother might all be related. There might be this kind of unified way of looking at the world based on what I think is true. And I think that if I am trying to do anything, it is applying, let's say, it's like my systematic theology hat on, trying to work out what a systematic theology of modernity might be. I obviously, I think it's wrong insofar as like I believe in God, but I also, I think that there is, like any worldview, it contains multitudes and deserves to be teased out. I'm interested in like figuring out what the implicit religion of modernity is. But I, yeah, of course I recognize that I come at it with an angle, but I hope that, I don't know, I hope the humanistic part of the angle comes to the forefront and that I keep any priggishness in check, or at least I should. Yeah, I mean, I think the religion of modernity is a religion that doesn't recognize itself as such. And that's part of the problem, I think. And I am, I should say, I am very sympathetic to this enlightenment desire to throw off these arbitrary customs and liberate our minds and bodies. And you can draw a straight line from that awakening to these later revolutions in sexuality and gender and individual freedom. And those are good things. But I think part of what worries you is this trade-off. It, it is sort of what Nietzsche calls the terrifying death of God, right? Where we free ourselves from the constraints of yesterday, of established authority. But then that sort of puts society into a little bit of 
disequilibrium and chaos because we also lose some of those binding myths that serve as a foundation for our own persons and for our shared culture. And we're sort of still living in the shadow of, of that disruption in many ways. I agree. I mean, I, I laugh sometimes. I'm I'm an Episcopalian, and so I'm used to annoying everybody by being <laughs> too middle of the road. Uh, I've annoyed I've annoyed lots of conservative Catholics, and I've annoyed I just annoy everybody. But I do think, with my extremely moderate Episcopalian hat on, that it is precisely in kind of prudential moderation. Like I think that freedom is great, and also that being in community and bound to things greater than ourselves. These are both good things, and an ideal debate for me would be one that recognized that both of these things are goods that, like, in order to function in the world, we have to figure out how to rightly order, rather than seeing, like, seeing freedom as bad and and authority as good or vice versa. I think both of those things are mistakes because both of them, both views kind of misrepresent the fact that we have these competing goods in being human, and sometimes being human is about working out what to do with that. Absolutely. And I love that you went there, and I think you maybe just clarified for me one of the reasons why I find a lot of solidarity with you as a thinker. I think we share a lot of overlapping concerns. And this book drudged up a lot of thoughts for me. I often have a difficult time categorizing myself as a political thinker. I'm not really a fan of isms, and I don't really fit neatly into any ideological box. And, and sometimes people I know call me a moderate or something like that. And I never like that because what people usually mean by moderate is milquetoast. <sighs> and I don't, I'm not that. I do have commitments. But on some deep level, I, I do see political life and social life as an attempt to live in this tension between the desire for order and progress. And that negotiation is impossibly difficult, but it is what's required. And I think you're exploring a related tension between individualism and collectivism, between the desire to assert ourselves and our individual freedom, and this absolute need we have to exist as part of a self-transcendent collective. And I think the history you lay out in the book is at least partly the history of that negotiation, which is really just a bloated way of saying I think it's a great book, and it was a pleasure to talk to you about it. Well, thank you so much. It was an absolute delight. Once again, the book is called Self-Made, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. Tara Isabella Burton, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming in. Eric Janikas is our producer. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. As always, let us know what you think. Drop us a line at thegrayarea at vox.com. If you appreciated this episode, please share the link with your friends on all these socials. And remember, new episodes of The Gray Area now drop on Mondays. Listen and subscribe. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.